Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. As you're finding Matthew chapter 11, the, the theme of this text that we'll read and the message this morning is just that very message of the song that Gwen sang for us, that Christ is a refuge for our weary souls. We are in between sermon series. We just finished up a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And in a few weeks, we're going to start a sermon series on the Old Testament book, Daniel, which uh, I hope will prove profitable for us as a church as we live like Daniel and many of God's people really in our own form of Babylonian captivity in a hostile world. And I pray that that journey through that letter will help encourage us and help us live more faithfully in, in dark times. But as you're finding Matthew 11, we're just going to read a few verses there, 28, 29, and 30. I want to let you know a couple things coming up. First, this week, uh, me, uh, myself, along with the rest of the pastors, are driving to Louisville, Kentucky tomorrow where we will be all week for a a pastor's conference that we go to every two years. It's called Together for the Gospel, and it is always a very encouraging time for us as a pastoral staff, and so do be praying for Traveling Mercies, Paul's driving, and pray that we get there. I don't know where that came from. It was just totally unwarranted. He's a good... The joke is, I'm actually a terrible driver, and I'm such a bad driver that when we go places in my truck, one of the other guys drives me. That's how bad of a driver I am. And we all know that. So I'm glad you're driving, Paul. But we'll be gone uh, all week. And then when we come back uh, Friday, uh, Will uh, Hawk will preach a standalone message next Saturday. And then the following Saturday after that, we will, we will get into uh, Daniel. Sunday. What did I just say? You guys are freaking out on me now. (laughs) Relax. Okay, so let me just start over. Next Sunday, April 17th, Will is preaching a standalone message. And then the following Sunday, we'll start Daniel. Are we okay now? Can we move on? (laughs) Golly. You guys got me shaking here. I don't know what I said. At the end of our time in the Word this morning, we're going to see four brothers and sisters from Crosspoint be baptized. And as we hear the gospel proclaimed in His Word and through the testimonies of these brothers and sisters giving witness to God's work in their lives, I pray that God would stir our hearts with affection, right? That He would, that he would do more than just... Uh, have us gather together out of rote tradition because it's a, a Sunday morning in the South, but that God would, would stir our affections, that we would call out to Him, and that if you are in this room, as Joseph prayed so well before in the call to worship, if you are in this room and you're not yet trusting in Christ, that God, by His sovereign mercy, would give you eyes to see ears to hear and a heart to believe in the one true king. So with that, let me, let me read Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, and then I'll pray. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we thank you that we can gather with such ease and freedom. We think of our brothers and sisters around the world who cannot do what we are doing today in freedom. Pray for your grace to the persecuted church. And as we think about the church abroad, we think about the church gathered in our city, and I'm so grateful for other Bible-preaching churches in our city. I thank you for Mount Zion Baptist and my friend Tom Neville, their pastor, and I pray that you'd give him grace as he preaches your word today. Pray that you'd stir the affections for Christ in that congregation and draw unbelievers to you. I pray for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and my friend Bill Douglas as he preaches the gospel today. Give him, give him power from on high to encourage and edify the saints and call unbelievers to repentance. I pray for Luis Scott, the pastor of Ambassadors for Christ, that bilingual congregation. Thank you for his work there and for the preached word there. And would you again encourage and edify and call unbelievers to life. And Lord, as we stare at this text this morning, would you help us to find rest in Christ? Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. May we find our rest in you alone today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think the point of this text, these three verses, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, is really quite, quite straightforward and simple. The point is, is that Jesus is speaking to a people who are burdened in this particular context with the obligation to follow God's Old Testament law, the the extra commandments that and the traditions of men that the religious leaders were putting on them. They were people that were burdened with their duty. They were people that were burdened with the sin that they were fighting within. They were people really not much unlike us today. They were people that were tired and weary from a world that is dark and oppressive and a heart that is beaten up and weary and incapable in and of itself to, to follow God. And Jesus comes to them and he comes to us in this text and he says to come to him. So I think the point is very simple that Jesus invites all those that will come to him to find rest, to find satisfaction in him. Now, what is this rest that, that Jesus is offering? What's this idea of the rest of God? Because even if you're anything like me, I mean, we are, we are anxious Americans. Even the statement of being invited into rest can cause some of us to be restless just by being called to rest. Like, what does that mean? What do I have to do, right? Because we are so geared, and I think particularly as Americans maybe more so than any other culture in the history of civilization. 
We are so geared to validate ourselves by actions, by things that we can do. So the invitation to rest in Christ, it sort of feels mysterious to us, and it simultaneously delights us. Oh, we know we need that. And it also terrifies us. What does that look like, right? And this is what Jesus is inviting us to. So what what does it mean to be in rest in Christ, to rest in God? Well, to understand this biblical concept of rest, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, where in the first two chapters of Genesis, God creates everything that is. And remember on the seventh day, the writer of Genesis 1 and 2, who we know later on to be Moses, says that after God created everything out of nothing. Now, let me just pause there, a little rabbit trail. We talk about some difficult theological concepts here at Crosspoint, you know, like the, the relationship between God's utter sovereignty and man's responsibility and the problem of evil and all that kind of stuff. But just put this in your philosophical pipe and smoke it, figuratively. God never began. <laughs> There's no beginning to God. He has always existed. In fact, the notion of time that we are bound to in this life is a creation of God. He's outside of it. And out of nothing, he creates everything. The theological phrase is, I believe it's a Latin term, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God creates everything. Everything. So the next time you struggle with something that seems to be hard to put together, because how can God act like that? And yet we're still, God created everything out of nothing, and he never began. All right, back on the track now. Where was I? So in Genesis 1, God creates everything, and on the seventh day, what does Moses say? It says that he rested. And he rested not because God was tired, as if God was really exhausted from six days of creation, but God rested. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God was exhausted and staggered to the finish line and, 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 and barely got it across the finish line at the end. No, that idea encapsulated in God resting is, is that God is ceasing at that moment from his activity of creation and now he is enjoying, he is reigning, he is glorying in what his, he has created. And then the Bible speaks of this idea of rest and then God giving us this rest as not us staggering to the finish line, not doing anything once we find this rest in God, but, but imaging God in our rest and enjoying God and being satisfied in Him and, and finally, finally having our thirst quenched for our purpose in life. So to rest in God is not to take a nap. It's not to cease from activity. It's to enjoy, to find purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in God. And Jesus is inviting us to that. And then in verse 29, notice what he says. This word that we're not really familiar with in in our current, our, our common vernacular, other than maybe like the middle of an egg. This idea of yoke, right? Well, when Jesus says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you, he's talking about, he's using an agricultural analogy of this yoke, and it was a device 
that would join two animals together. So think about this, this sort of thing that would go around an, an, an ox's neck that would link it to another ox. And what would happen it would be a wood kind of device, wooden device that would link these two animals together that then would attach a plow to the back of it so that it would combine the strength of two animals so that they would be stronger and move in the same direction. In essence, it is the farmer putting these two beasts of burden, these two oxen, under subjection, linking them together, yoking them together, so that they will walk in the same direction and drag the plow and do more work for him. So it's this idea of being put under subjection by a master. And in the Old Testament, when this idea of yoking comes about, that's the picture. God will often say to his people through his prophets that if you continue to disobey me, I'm going to call this foreign people, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, and they are going to put you under their yoke. In other words, they're going to force you to work for them. And then when God speaks of freeing his people from captivity, he speaks of breaking the yoke of the enemies of God's people. But here in the New Testament, Jesus takes this idea of the yoke and turns it for the positive, right? He says that to have the yoke of slavery or the yoke of a foreign enemy or even the yoke of your own sin broken by God is to exchange one form of slavery for another. You see, Jesus is saying, I have a yoke, and I'm going to put it on you. And in fact, that's the picture that we see in Romans chapter 6. So let me just read a few verses out of Romans 6, starting in verse 17. And I know you guys are chuckling because at some point in just about every sermon, we get to the book of Romans, don't don't we? And just as a little heads up... um, Ron Mullins has been asking me for several years now when we are going through the book of Romans. I'm tentatively throwing it out there that in January of 2010, coming to a Crosspoint pulpit near you, we're going to start the letter to Romans. So buckle up, boys and girls. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be. But I don't know where, like, I'll cross-reference. All my cross-references are out of Romans, and if we're in Romans, where where do we go? Anyway, we'll just stay there. Okay. Romans 6, verse 17. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin, in other words, sin had you yoked. It had you doing its bidding. You who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So in essence, what it means to be a Christian is not merely to be freed from the yoke of sin that exists within and the yoke of our enemy, the world, the devil, and everything in it that exists without, but it means to exchange the yoke of sin and slavery to this dark world to the yoke of Christ, which he is telling us is a good and gracious yoke. And then there's that all-important word there in verse 18 it says having been set free from this sin from this yoke 
of the world, from this yoke of the sin. Well, how does that happen? Well, friends, therein, in those few words, is the gospel itself. So before we can move on, we have to just see that and stare at it for just a moment. That It is Christ who sets us free from this yoke that exists, that is around all of our necks. And how does he do that? Well, the Bible is very clear that all of us are dead in our sins. We are, we are, in a sense, slaves to this master of our fallen desires and this world that is teeming with our fallen desires and with our enemy, the devil, who is orchestrating our fallen desires so that we are by nature, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. But then Jesus comes, God in the flesh, and Jesus takes on human flesh. He lives a perfect life where all of us have disobeyed. Jesus completely obeys. And he then lays down his perfect, obedient life on the cross. And he bears the punishment of God the Father that should have been ours. So remember in the Old Testament where we talked about how God said, I will punish you if you continue to rebel me and I will put you in a yoke of slavery. And that's part of God's punishment for his people. Well, on the cross, Jesus is bearing the punishment for us, giving ourselves over to the yoke of slavery to our fallen desires. And Jesus on the cross does that. He bears the wrath of God. He extinguishes it. He satisfies it because he's not just a good and righteous and perfect man, but he is the holy, eternal Son of God, he bears the wrath of God, he satisfies it, he removes it, and he rises from the grave, and when he rises from the grave, he breaks the shackles of the yoke that existed on the necks of his people, right? That's why Colossians 2 says that he triumphs over the sin and the regulation that accused us, and he makes a public spectacle of them. So Jesus, in his life, His death, his victorious resurrection breaks the shackles of the yoke of sin and wickedness and evil and Satan that exists around the neck of all of his people before he does this. And that's what happens. We are freed by Christ. We are are now go from being yoked in sin to being yoked to a good gracious master who leads us in paths of righteousness. So with that then, let's... Let's conclude by asking two questions. What are the enemies of resting in Christ? I like to call these rest thieves. What are the things that, that steal our rest, our ability to be contented and satisfied in Christ alone? Because even, you know this, if you've been a Christian for more than seven minutes, that even if you have been freed from the yoke of this world that oftentimes, even though we are yoked to Christ, we will wander off. We are prone to wander and we, 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 we lock ourselves down again with, with, with the ways of this world. So what are the thieves of rest in Christ? A few thoughts. One, and I think we, again, are particularly vulnerable to this, we compare ourselves to others. This world of social media that we live in, right? Isn't it kind of a two-edged sword? I mean, it's a wonderful way to stay connected. It's a wonderful way to encourage one another. But isn't it also a wonderfully horrible way to fall into covetousness and jealousy? Right? And don't we just always put our best 
foot forward. And even the kind of keeping it real posts are kind of strangely sort of, I'm awesome kind of undertone, right? You know, just keeping it real here. But I still had to Instagram filter that mug so I look kind of cute, right? And God forbid, God forbid, woe to the teenage girl. Woe to the teenage girl who doesn't have the pose when she gets her picture taken and put on Instagram, right? The, the hand on the hip, the, I, I don't even want to do it. I, <laughs> woe to the young lady who is posing with six other girls and she's not canting her body in exactly the right way when the picture's taken. Woe to her. Right? It is like we compare ourselves to one another and we sit behind our little screens and we simultaneously delight and grind our teeth at a world around us. And friends, that will send your heart on a quest that will never satisfy. Another, another thief of rest is, is just the fear of man, right? Just wanting people to like you. And of course, it's related to social media and Instagram filters and being awesome all the time. But we just want people to be pleased with us. Do a little experiment. I've done this on my own soul, and I was convicted with the results just mark down how often during the week you bend the conversation back to yourself in some way to sort of make yourself look good, right? Just, I mean, just, oh yeah, yeah, that's great. But did you know, you know, just kind of redirecting subtly. Nobody's, nobody's, nobody's so brazen to say, oh yeah, that's great, but can we talk about me now, right? Nobody, nobody does that. But we all bend the conversation to make ourselves look good so that people will give us applause. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 12. This verse, this rings off the page to me. Verses 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Listen to this. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And this is not Brad saying, listen here, boys and girls, I see this as a problem in your life. Now fix it and come back next Sunday and do better, okay? I am so prone to this, I have to laugh to keep from crying. I do. I am prone to this. Another thief of rest is... The kids will know this acronym, FOMO, fear of missing out, right? God forbid, God forbid the young parent in this room who misses a night of feeding your baby kale (laughs) reading a book to them and playing classical music. 
Because that child may miss out on the opportunity to score good on their entrance exam to Brit David. They might not go to Columbus High, and they may not be an honor student at the University of Georgia. And oh my gosh, what will happen if they don't get that? God forbid. Oh, did I touch a nerve? I'm sorry, I'm seeing some people. God forbid if my kid doesn't sign up for pitching lessons so that he knows how to throw a curveball by the time he's eight. God forbid if my little girl doesn't get in the dance class, right, at the Columbus Symphony or Ballet because, now friends, all these things are wonderful things to do. Go to Brit David. Go to Columbus. Throw a curveball. Hit a home run. Keep your head up. Get good form. Stick somebody. Drive them into the ground, right? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Learn how to play the instrument. Be an honor student. Do, Do it. Do it all to the glory of God. But friends, do you see how subtle and how wicked and how deceptive this can be? We run around like little lab rats addicted to the crack of achievement. And we addict our children to the very same thing. And it steals our rest. Because what happens if Johnny isn't a great football player? What happens if Susie isn't the best violinist in the world? What happens? What happens? Because if that's where your joy and satisfaction is found, then you will never rest. You will never rest. Another one, just a few more. I know it hurts a little bit, but just a couple more. It's just this, I think an enemy of rest is just this culture of constant stimulation that we have with like our iPhones, right? I was with a group of people the other day at a little seminar at my kid's school where these people came in and did this little presentation about just what we are addicted to in our lives and social media. And somebody called the iPhone the adult pacifier. And I thought that was a great analogy, right? I mean, we just, we don't, a little kid that's nervous and just needs to suck on something, so are adults. We just, we just have it with us. I mean, God forbid I stand in a room and don't look like I'm, I'm needed. God forbid I stand in a room and have a center of gravity that goes beyond what everybody else around me thinks about me in that moment. And God forbid that they look at me and I am not occupied with something. So i got to let everybody know that I'm checking email. I'm important. People are texting me. By golly, an expatriate in Nigeria will send me a million dollars if I'll just give them my banking account number right now. I just got that email. I'm important. A couple months ago, uh, Rob Ward in a men's lunch here at Crosspoint read a few lines out of a study to us and he was we were going through the spiritual disciplines book and he was speaking on the discipline of of solace or silence I can't remember which but he referenced an article in a science journal the journal of science about how people in this study would prefer to endure electric shock than to sit in a room by yourself for 15 minutes Listen to this. 
In 11 studies, in this Journal of Science study, we found that participants typically did not enjoy spending 6 to 15 minutes, (laughs) 6 to 15, not hours, minutes, in a room by themselves with nothing to do but think. That they enjoyed doing mundane external activities much more and that many preferred to administer electric shock to themselves instead of being left alone with their thoughts. Most people seem to prefer to be doing something rather than nothing, even if that something is negative. 67% of male participants in one study gave themselves at least one shock during the thinking period of 6 to 15 minutes. One outlier, this man, in a 15-minute interval, administered 190 shocks to himself. (laughs) Poor guy. I just want to meet him. I want to hug him. I want to just... Come on, man. Step away from the outlet, bro. One one more. One more. So just comparing ourselves to others, the fear of man, fear of missing out, this culture of constant stimulation that makes us just like little babies sucking on a pacifier. And then something that's subtle. And I, I think we may be vulnerable to this here in this church. Church culture, in and of itself, can be exhausting in subtle ways. And church cultures that really care about good doctrine and truth and understanding things rightly, in their own sort of unseen way, can be kind of exhausting, right? Because God forbid the person who doesn't have a Piper or Spurgeon quote ready to whip out. God forbid if you say something that's just a little off mark of what the Reformed theologian said back in the 1500s. Oh, well, that's, that's helpful, brother, but your doctrine of sanctification is, is just a wee bit off. And there's this subtle thing that can grip our hearts that if we actually let the people around us know that we don't know what we're talking about, that we are somehow sort of like JV status. We're lesser than. The pressure to not mess up or say anything that reveals that you don't know what you're talking about can become subtle and unseen and immense. And what it does is it produces a restlessness in ourselves because we're always trying to act like we know what we're talking about when oftentimes we don't. These are rest thieves. So then finally, how do we enter this rest? Well, I wrestled with even this question because even the phrasing of the question itself can send us in the wrong direction, right? We've been talking about all these little things that we, that we do. And then the question, okay, okay, brother, I see that. I see that. Now, how do we find rest? Okay, so tell me. Tell me. How do we find rest so that I can go work at finding rest? Do you see, do you see the, the sort of the, 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 just the paradox there? Well, let me just answer this question, I think, with just a story from the Bible. Matthew chapter 10, verse 46. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll pray and see these dear ones baptized. Matthew 10. It's Jesus healing. I'm sorry, Mark 10. 
Mark 10. <laughs> I'm resting in that mistake right there. I'm just I'm okay with it. Mark 10, verse 46 through 52. <clears throat> Jesus is on the way to Jericho, and he has this encounter with this blind man named Bartimaeus. Just listen to these words. Just put yourself in this scene. Just imagine being on that road watching this. Imagine being a man who's been blind all his life in a culture that when you're blind attributes probably some sin to your life or sin of your parents that God is punishing you. Remember in John chapter 9, Jesus heals this blind man and the people come to him and say, well, what has this man done? to be blind or what have his parents done and Jesus demolishes their faulty theology and he says no 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 this man is this way because of this moment where the work of God is going to be shown in his life right imagine living under that disgrace imagine living under that that difficulty in a first century world to be blind to be a beggar verse 46 of Mark 10 And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I guess he had received word and Reputation was starting to spread that there was this man, Jesus, who could heal. And this beggar, Bartimaeus, this blind man, cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you whole. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We could spend a lot of time talking about a good doctrine and a good theology and a biblical method of approaching God. We could spend a good deal of time Staring at the beauty of the gospel and the rightness of all the truth that flows out of it. And those are things that we should do. In fact, we do do them often. But then I think there are times when in the midst of rest thieves, I think we need to be less analytical and more like Bartimaeus. Jesus, 
Have mercy on me. I am not an exceptional parent. I am a mediocre pastor. I am an inconsistent husband. I am a lazy, forgetful friend. I can't stick with anything more than two weeks sometimes, it seems. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. I scurry off to find rest in all these things that only make me work harder. Jesus, have mercy on me. Friends, there are people in this room today who need to follow the model of blind Bartimaeus and throw off fear of man, throw off whatever stops you, and you need to cling to Jesus. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. The band is going to sing a song. We're going to hear four testimonies read of God's saving grace. We're going to see four brothers and sisters baptized. And what some of you may need to do in this room is when we respond with a song or two afterwards, you may need to do something just symbolic of this right here. You may need to get up out of your seat You may need to find a corner, a place, a nook, a cranny, and you, before you leave this room today, need to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. You need to not be detoured by the people around you, what they may think. You need to fight through all of that, and you need to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. You need to put down your list, down your to-do check boxes, all the things that you need to do to be a better parent, a better husband, a better wife, a more faithful single person, a this, a that, a whatever, and you need to throw off your cloak and run to the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. You need it. I need it. Jesus, have mercy on me. You alone can give me rest. You need to do that, not because getting up and finding a place to pray, not because going forward to seek out some person, the pastors, not because any of those things in and of themselves will unlock some secret code in your life, but because as just a, a, a symbol of what is churning in your heart, you need to cry out to God. What does that look like in your life? Do not leave this room today until you do that. And friends, he always answers that prayer. Let's pray. Father, 
Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, O God. In all of our valid pursuits, would You, by Your Holy Spirit, lift up our eyes and call us to find rest in Christ alone. Be, as we sang earlier today, the refuge of our weary souls. And I pray that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen.